0: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to Cosmonaut Magazine's panel on In Defense of Socialist Planning, Why Socialism Requires Planning. Uh, My name is Matthew Strupp. I'm an editor at Cosmonaut Magazine, a member of the Marxist Unity Group. The description for the panel today uh, from Cosmonaut Magazine is that a major goal of socialists is to win the fight for democracy by extending democracy to the economy. Capitalism is a contradictory couple of the free market and the dictatorship of the workplace. The free market implies anarchy of production and production for profit, but not human welfare. The dictatorship of the workplace means rigorous planning of the labor process and intense exploitation of labor. For Marxists, economic democracy means planning, the planning of the economy in a way to assure the welfare of human beings and the health of the planet. Uh, So what is planning? How can it be distinguished from market mechanisms? Can there be a free market in socialism? How does planning contribute to the goal of democracy? Um, we have three panelists from Cosmonaut Magazine to contribute to this discussion today. Uh, we have Jamil Lakhdar-Hamana, Hamina, who is an applied mathematician and computer scientist working at the National Institute of Health. He's an editor at Cosmonaut Magazine and helps run, helps run the Cosmonaut Science Podcast. He has written for Cosmonaut Magazine, The Weekly Worker, and The International Socialist Review. He's a member of DC DMV, DSA. Carlos Perez is a socialist organizer in NYC DSA and events coordinator for Cosmonaut Magazine. Finally, Amelia Davenport is a writer and editor for Cosmonaut Magazine. They also work as a consultant for socialist organizations applying Stafford Beer's viable systems model and other systems engineering techniques. Their background is in political science, labor studies, and management studies. They have published works on political economics, Marxist historiography, and cybernetics. Amelia's updated and expanded uh, Amelia has updated and expanded Mary Marcy's classic primer on Marxist economics shop talks and is developing a survey of work on economic planning. So the format of this talk will be, we'll have our three panelists um, give about 45 minutes um, of, of presentation on um, a view of socialist planning um, and their, their views on the question, and then we'll move to discussion. Audience members will raise your hands, I'll put you down on stack and then we'll go through and then we'll have five to ten minutes for the panelists to respond at the end. Um, hope that works for everyone and I'll hand it off to our panelists to begin the talk.
2: Hi there everyone, uh, my name is Jamil, I'm really glad to see everyone, it's uh, quite a full room, uh, I'm pleasantly surprised. Um, So I'm gonna get into it. So I'm gonna begin by introducing the concept of socialist planning. And the structure of my portion is going to be on the one hand analytical, I'm gonna try to explain the concept as clearly as possible, presupposing little to no acquaintance with the concept, and polemical, I'm gonna be trying to convince you all uh, about planning, so to speak. So I'm gonna address three questions. What is planning? Why is planning desirable? And why is planning necessary? So, to understand socialist planning, we have to have a basic understanding of capitalism, the kind of society that exists today, the kind of society that shapes our life at every moment, and which we as socialists struggle to transcend. So, to frame our discussion on capitalism, we need to have some tools to talk about societies in general. The framework I will use is classical historical materialism, I call it CHM, at least my version of it. CHM is here a theory deployed to explain historical trajectories of human societies in terms of certain causal mechanisms. It includes the dynamics, how things change. CHM also includes a language that is deployed to describe the build up or the makeup of societies. It includes a statics. So we're going to focus here only on statics. In static terms, CHM makes a descriptive claim that every society is made up of a base or economic structure and a superstructure. We're going to focus solely on the economic structure. So, The economic structure is the set of all production relation or relations of production. Production relation is a relation of effective control. Relations of effective control are in legal terms or in the terms that we know every day, ownership or property relations. And the terms of this ownership relation are persons and or productive forces. So productive forces, rather than giving a definition, I'm going to just give some examples and distinctions. Productive forces are divided broadly into two sets of things. Means of production, which include instruments of production, raw materials, land, and labor power, the capacity of human beings to labor. So we we can have effective control of means of production by a person. So for instance, a peasant owns the plow that they use. Or we can have effective control of labor power, or the laborer themselves, by another person. The slave owner owns the slave. When one ensemble of persons enters into certain kinds of relations of production, when they have certain ownership rights, they form a class. As a preview, in capitalism, the class that commands the means of production and and labor power is the capitalist class, the bourgeoisie. The class that does have that does not have any command over any means of production, but only their labor power, is the working class, the proletariat. So in CHM, the economic structure differentiates one kind of society from another, it's a criterion of identity. There's another way to describe societies, another criterion. Every society has certain material and social features which characterize the way human beings labor together, the mode of production, how they distribute the product of labor amongst themselves and to different places that produce the mode of distribution and how they consume them consume the things they produce the mode of consumption I'm going to discuss the mode of production and the mode of distribution the material mode of production is the way productive forces are deployed the material processes set and trained by the laboring the ecological effects they have on the surroundings human beings have on their surroundings Uh, the social mode of production primarily refers to two things the purpose of production and the form of surplus labor and the means of surplus extraction. So in terms of the purpose of production, production can be for use or for exchange. Production is for use when the product of labor is more or less immediately consumed and is produced to be consumed. A peasant produces food to be consumed but can also give some of the produce, for instance, to the Lord, who will then consume it. Production for exchange is when the product of labor is not immediately consumed and is produced to be exchanged. The product can be exchanged by the laborer or by another. Peasant may take some food to the market to sell for exchange value, for money. They may also give it to the Lord, who then sends his minions to sell it at the market. So, the form of surplus labor, the means of surplus extraction. In class societies, the laborer produces not just enough to reproduce their life, they produce a surplus. Furthermore, in class society, there is a ruling class that appropriates the surplus product that exploits the labor of the subordinate classes. The kind of surplus that is produced, the character and features of that relation of appropriation, that relation of exploitation, explains and is a sign of the kind of society. For instance, in feudalism, the form of the surplus appropriated is physical. And the peasants give a part of his in-kind or physical product to the Lord. Or else he goes and works on the Lord's manor for a certain amount of time in something called corvée. So the mode of distribution. Mode of distribution is the way different products go from site of production to site of consumption and to another site of consumption. Similar to production, there's distribution based on need and distribution based on exchange value. Small peasant communities the mode of distribution is pers- personal allocation of, of say food stocks amongst the family etc etc. The capitalist society the mode of distribution is by exchange of money for commodities. So capitalism. All of this seems highly abstract formal. So let us turn to capitalism. We will discuss capitalism in terms of economic structure, mode of production, and mode of distribution. So, capitalism is a kind of society for which, at the highest level, the economic structure is defined by a sort of relation of production. The effective control by a small group called capitalists over the means of production, and most importantly, over the labor power of a much larger group, the working class. The working class owns no means of production, is more or less coerced, compelled to sell their labor power to the capitalist class not this or that capitalist. Now in terms of the social mode of production, the purpose of production in capitalism is not for use but for exchange. Many useless or harmful things are produced. Many useful and beneficial things are not. Capitalism severs the class of useful things from the class of produced and sold things. Let us take a look into the character of that production for exchange. In capitalism, means of production and labor power are commodities. Commodity being a social object with a dual character. On the one hand, it is a use value, a physical thing with useful properties. On the other, an exchange value, a social thing with a quantum of value slapped on. A capitalist purchases labor power and means of production and deploys them to produce commodities. Those commodities are then sold for money. After paying costs, interests, there is leftover, profit. Part of that profit is reinvested and the process is repeated. MCM, money, commodities, money. Back to purpose. Now production is for profit and the capitalist dynamic of production for profit leads to accumulation of capital. Productive activity in capitalist society is directed to the accumulation of abstract wealth. The mode of exploitation in capitalism is defined by the fact that the surplus product takes the form of surplus value which is embodied in profit and the mode of extraction of surplus value occurs in the wage relation and in the sale of commodities. The capitalist puts the laborer to work with means of production. In a certain amount of time, the worker produces X amount of value. So let's not get into the labor theory of value and all that stuff. Let's assume that value represents so much money. Why? Then the capitalist spends an amount on labor power and an amount on means of production. The commodities produced are then sold for a certain amount, which should exceed costs. That amount that is more than what is paid to the worker and that goes to paying costs, uh is the surplus value, is, the, is, is, is profit. So therein is the source of profit, the unpaid labor of the worker. So the mode of distribution of stuff occurring in capitalism is based on exchange. On the supply side, capitalists get stuff from site of production to consumption based on if they can sell the stuff to the consuming party and in so doing make a profit. If they cannot, they will not sell, they will hoard, etc. On the demand side, the capitalist gives it to a consuming party if they have the money, not if they need it. So socialist planning. Now, socialism is a kind of society that transcends capitalism. In terms of economic structure, it is defined by suppression of capitalist relations of production, of the capitalist class, and two, collective ownership of the means of production, where the associated owners or producers decide what the social priorities are and how to deploy their labor and distribute the surplus. So in terms of mode of production, in socialism, production is for use and not directed to the accumulation of abstract wealth. A thing is produced based on what the associated producers decide they need. This mode of production is coupled with a mode of distribution where things and resources are distributed based on need, whether that be a distribution of resources to producing units or to individuals for consumption. If it is needed, it gets distributed to the relevant party, not because they have the money. Labor power and resources are allocated to the relevant production units based on targets that must be met targets once again democratically determined, potentially even at the global level. So let's depict the principles behind this mode of production and distribution with an allegorical agora. Every month or so there's a website that live streams a vote on the plan. We're going to call it Plantube. During Plantube, the total fund of wealth is displayed. Total number of working hours and resources that the society has. Different categories to invest in are then shown. Each person gets an equal number of votes to cast, more than the categories, and decides what's to invest in. How many counts a category receives determines investment in that category. So there are a number of problems that occur with this system. It's a toy example more than anything. What if the investment is not viable? What if the investment is deleterious to nature? Who determines the categories of investment? Who sets up the agora? So we can talk about these things in discussion. These are difficult to, of difficulties with this system that must be admitted and explored, like any, any social system. So why is socialism desirable? Why is it necessary? So now that we understand to some degree the ABCs of socialist planning, we have to ask the question, why is this desirable? Why is it necessary? And there are two sorts of deeply entangled reasons. I'll say ethical and non Those reasons only make sense on the background of the undesirable and irrational features of capitalism. So, in terms of why is socialism desirable, first, yeah, why is it desirable? In short, because it is ethical. Very simple answer. it corresponds to the ethics of most individuals living even in the epoch of capitalism. It is a fact that democracy is an ethic which many seek to make reality, and that we socialists carry on a long Republican tradition of fighting for and extending democracy. But don't we live in democracy? Aren't capitalism and democracy twins like Milton Friedman uh, like to argue, yeah, we're we're all laughing. So it has been shown time and time again that capitalism can do perfectly fine without liberal representative government. In fact, it can do perfectly well without the civil rights side of liberalism. Capitalism has existed in constitutional monarchies, in absolutist monarchies, in imperial colonies, military junta's, kleptocracy, and in fascist dictatorships. But there's a deeper issue, even for those putative democracies like the U.S. Capitalism is dictatorship in the workplace and anarchy in exchange. There is no or very little economic democracy. The most successful firms will adopt not only cutting-edge technology but impose the utmost discipline in the labor process. Workers will obey more or less orders and respect the authority of their management. There is no deliberation and no vote. There is no accountability of management. Produce, produce, produce is the model of the capitalist of the worker. This authority-driven state of affairs where decisions are taken top-down is the dictatorship of the workplace. The Amazon deliverer is driven to deliver at a frenetic and dangerous pace. Their efficiency tracked meticulously by computer and can be easily fired if they do not make these inhuman uh, expectations. Anarchy of exchange means that all the different firms produce to sell, and they do not produce and sell knowing what all the other firms and parties produce and what each and every person needs. They produce with the expectation that their commodities will be bought by some amount of people with some amount of money. The fact that there is great planning at the firm level, but not overall at the social or global level, means that there is no overall control over the economy, no ability to assess the effect of certain actions on a society-wide level. Anarchy of the market means that the economy becomes a haphazardly complex and insensitive entity, somehow acting independent of us and governing our lives. The feature of dictatorship violates the principles of democracy. The anarchy in exchange implies a state of affairs that violates self-determination and excludes a social state of freedom. If freedom is not some unrealistic contingent state of free will, but a social condition of generalized non-domination and non-coercion, then dictatorship of the workplace and anarchy of market make freedom an impossibility for the worker and the great mass of humanity. So non-ethical reasons. So we have discussed things in eth- ethical terms and used ethical talk. This ethical talk translates to or implies a number of problems confronting humanity and nature. We can only focus on one of these reasons for the t- for sake of time. So capitalism is self-expanding value and is based on social relations of production, begetting competition between owners of production. Competition selects for firms that are efficient and thus adopt labor-saving technology. That has meant machinery replaced labor. And machinery, in order to do useful work, requires a source of energy. There is a long history up to it, but machinery ended up being powered with fossil fuels. The unmitigated use of fossil fuels is part of a general problem of capitalism. Ceaseless production, independent of use or effect, It has meant ceaseless production with fossil fuels without regard for ecological destruction. Clearly this must stop. Means must be taken to control the economy, to mitigate our harm and repair the planet. So socialist planning, how does it solve these issues? Socialist planning is democratic deliberation over production and distribution. Production and distribution on the basis of use and effect. And with this system we can begin to tackle these ethical and non-ethical problems. Socialist planning means economic democracy. Priorities and goals are determined at the highest social level through democratic deliberation. The running of the workplace is conducted with the utmost concern for democratic more. Plan to depicted that society-wide democracy. My comrades are going to get into the more workplace-level democracy. So democratic deliberation coupled with production for need can mean tighter control on economic life. Why? In socialism, the production of, say, X takes place based on the decision that it is needed either for production or consumption, by such and such firm or such and such person. The system of of planning takes into account what is needed based on the number of persons and their respective needs, as well as the existing producers and distributors as well as productive forces, the resources we have. On the basis of that information, the system of planning allocates resources in the right amount to to the producers and distributors. With that society-wide knowledge, the messy complexity and stability of capitalism can be mitigated. No more unsold goods, no more goods needed that are there and on the shelves, at least to, a lo- at least to an extreme extent. The economy can begin to uh, be the product of collective de- deliberation and action, and not the more or less overly complex behavior of production without social consciousness, and for exchange without notion of need. It means greater self-determination for the working class and for humanity. Finally, if we are, a- are to solve or mitigate ecological meltdown, we will need a mode of production where resources labor means of production can be devoted to the massive process of transition that is we will need greater control over what we produce and how we assess the costs of what we produce beyond the cost of drawing on so much labor and resources now it is all well and good to have pretty ideas about democracy self-determination and ecological sanity but is what i have said more or less bullshit? is it even possible and what will it look like in the broadest strokes
3: Okay, hi comrades, it's so good to see you all. Um, so my comrade here uh, took us over some basic concepts that we used to think about, you know, production, economic system, etc. My—what I'm going to do more or less is I'm going to tackle the question of whether socialism is even possible. Um, It's a pretty common refutation of our entire project. Um, So the way that I'm going to do it is I'm going to present the strongest argument against socialist planning. Um, And the strongest argument that I know of is essentially that it's impossible. Um, I call it the complexity argument. The idea being that modern economies are so complex there's so much to keep track of and manage that it would, in, in principle, be impossible for any anybody or any group of somebodies to, you know, reconcile the different parts of, a, of an economy. Um, so this kind of argument has been made by people like uh, von Mises uh, and Hayek. Um, essentially that planning is impossible because there's too many moving parts, there's too many things going on, there's too many dials going up and down. Um, And you're not going to be able to actually build a balance plan because, um, yeah, it's like building a plane, I guess. But um, I guess I want you to imagine, like, what what an economy is. Uh, Well, an economy is just, you know, it's a system of production, distribution, like like my comrade said. But if you imagine it in terms of, like, a picture in your head, imagine a spider web of, like, dependencies, like, one person makes one thing that uh, you know several other people may use the thing that the, the first person made and then it kind of branches out it spreads out like a spider web encompassing every single side of production distribution and consumption um, so the argument goes that basically the pricing like the the price of a good or a commodity Embeds information about, you know, how something is produced, how much it costs to produce, how much people want it, you know, all of this information that, if it were disaggregated and presented, uh, you know, like a list, would be an enormous amount of information for any one person or even a department of people to manage. Um, essentially, the market, what we know as a free market, is involved in making that information, propagating that information throughout the economy in the form of price. Um, And, you know, companies and firms and whatnot, they make decisions based on this one thing, the price. It's a little more complicated, but essentially the price is the main factor of, you know, capitalist social production. Um, So I I guess I'll give an example of what I mean by chain of dependency or whatever. So imagine that we have a good X, and for whatever reason, it doesn't actually matter what the reason is, but let's say that the cost to produce X good has gone up, right? So if you're a planner, if you're a guy sitting or a group of people sitting in an office uh, trying to come up with a plan for the economy, if the good X goes up in cost, it isn't just good X because good X is also an input for, let's say, good Y. So... If you adjust the cost of good X, then you have to adjust the cost of good Y. And if you adjust the cost of good Y, let's say good Z takes Y as an input. And you have to adjust the cost of good Z. Now imagine that, but millions of goods and commodities that relate in all sorts of ways. It's like, just to put it like that, it's actually not possible to sit down, even if you have like uh, 100 million monkeys, or whatever, um, typing at a computer, but it, it's, it's not, it wouldn't be possible to reconcile all the different parts that take XYZ and then, you know, adjust the cost and whatnot. Um, and that, we have to concede that that's actually a problem if we're trying to um, plan in a, stably plan an economy. I mean, it's actually, strictly speaking, it's impossible to do that. Um... You know, I'm a. I should have. Guessed, I guess I should have mentioned this in, in the biography. But I'm a computer scientist, so I, I, I kind of think about these things in terms of um, can we com- calculate or compute these things. So in the language of computer science, there are a certain category of. I guess they're called algorithms, but there's there's certain uh, class. There's a certain class of problems that we call computationally intractable, and what that means is that if you take a problem. And even if you have all the time in the world, you have all the space in the world, you could have the entire universe as a computer, for example, you would not solve that problem. It's it, it would not be possible to do so. So when Hayek and well, mainly Hayek, because he's a stronger version of this argument. When Hayek first posed the socialist calculation problem, um, he pretty much put it in terms of, well, it's not possible to actually crunch all the numbers you would need to to like. Make sure everything is priced correctly for for allocation in the planned economy, and he would actually he's actually correct. It's not possible for someone to do that. Um, someone in terms of I guess a human being, um, but thankfully, we don't need people to do that. We have computers now. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's part of part of the problem is that how we pose the problem of planning. Um, so we have techniques in computer science and mathematics that if we pose a problem of planning in terms of like, in terms of I guess a matrix of values that correspond to like the cost of what these goods, and then it's, it's possible for a computer to control those numbers. Um, so we've come a long way in terms of comput- uh, computational power since Hayek made this argument. So uh, for example, you have more computational power in your pocket in a smartphone than the entirety of the Soviet Union with its planning departments at. Um, and these were computers that used to take entire like wings of a building. Um, so, in terms of raw computational power, we're approaching exascale levels. So, to give you a sense of what that means, um, in computers we have something called a floating-point operation. And what that means is that you're you're adding, subtracting, or you're doing arithmetic uh, to two real numbers, or you know, two numbers with decimal points or whatever. Um, so, an excess scale, an an excess scale level computation means that we can do 10 to the 18th power arithmetic operations on decimal num- on real numbers. Um, so, this, for example, it's like adding uh, 10.2 plus 18 point 50 or whatever um and to give you a comparison of what that means in the numbers 10 to the 18 is about the age of the universe in seconds so the the main point that i'm trying to make is that we have the capacity to crunch an insane amount of numbers um without really breaking a sweat at this point so i i've sort of given a conceptual um argument against the socialist calculation problem It was very heavily truncated, but I'm going to give a historical, I'll give you historical arguments because in fact, the complexity argument against planning is invalidated every single day. Like if it were true that economies are too, you know, too complex to solve, uh, you know, Amazon, things like Amazon and Walmart would not be possible. Just to give you a sense of like what the Amazon Walmart thing is, it's, they're essentially complex production and distribution networks like in a very real sense they are economies um so if we if we talk about the scale of like an economy like walmart or amazon i mean they're they're like a small country um they internally use techniques like forecasting like for example they'll study consumption patterns of people to say oh you know people tend to buy more uh they tend to buy more detergent in X month or Y month. They 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 study how people consume things so that they they always know how much to produce ahead of time. That's planning. Um, you know whether it's inventory management. Nowadays retailers don't keep everything that they're going to sell in the store. They keep a certain amount um, and then adjust the levels depending on um, whether people come in and whatnot. Um, and then you know Amazon's also um, really infamous for you know, one day delivery, and that's because they've worked out how to spread out all of their commodities, certain regional centers to make sure that at any given point, anyone can buy something and get it in a day. So the point I'm making is that there's already planning in capitalism on a firm level. I'll give you a sense of the scale. Um, In the last fiscal year, Walmart had a revenue of $573 billion. So. That's actually more than the the GDP, the 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 output of Sweden, which is about 520. Walmart is bigger than Sweden. Um, so, some of you may be familiar with the book "The People's Republic of Walmart," that makes certain arguments that I'm making about um, the feasibility of firm-level planning. Um, so, so what the book says essentially is that. The question of planning has already been solved. Um, it's just a matter of nationalizing Walmart and Amazon, and then, you know, continuing that that process. Um, so I, I'm I'm going to argue that that kind of planning is not what what we mean by socialist planning. But what I will say is that essentially the argument is correct. It's already we're already proving every single day that it is possible to plan extremely complex economic systems. Um, um, so to that. Kind of settles that in terms of, well they yeah planning but most importantly like without markets because internally you know they're not there's no market system internally in Walmart or Amazon um, and they don't use prices to communicate their um, the information that they're that they're that they need so I guess another thing I want to say about prices is that prices actually don't embed all of the information that we would find useful um, yeah, prices actually turn out Not to have a lot of use for information Like for example Prices don't tell us What the ecological impact Of a certain production process is It doesn't tell us whether we want to do Like whether we even want to build these things Like there's, there's, cer- there's certainly So many things that we produce that Really don't serve A social, a social Any social value um, So the standard approach of capitalism is like is, is not so much essentially if it can't be communicated in a price, someone else pays for it. That's called an externality. So the price of gas, for example, doesn't tell you how much the, how much we've killed the environment to take it out of the ground. Um, and it also doesn't tell us <laughs> it also doesn't tell us like who we're harming um, with, the, with the production of these commodities. Okay, so I guess it's it's really nice to say that something's not impossible, but do we have like actual examples? Um, we have examples in small scales. I mean, for example, in nineteen seventy three, Chile had um, implemented a project called Cybersyn which was a very very small scale planning um, exercise by the by the Allende government, and the idea was. Cybersyn would take real-time information from the plant or the factory and then a central control system would like aggregate this information and then send adjustments to the plant about, you know, produce more of this, produce less of that kind of thing. Um, it wasn't ever operational on a national scale. It was operational on industry, like sort of a small industry scale, but it was actually successful in breaking the trucker strike. Um, in 1973 um, I mean and we also have examples somewhat more banal examples. Um, the NHS for example is an in-kind social provisioning system there's no there's no internal price mechanism for dispensing health care in the NHS um, the Cuban economy for example is largely planned um, that isn't to say that these like for example something like Cuba which has very real constraints um, associated with it, That not to say that that's like the perfect example but it's it's giving you an example that planning is actually not in principle impossible okay all right so I guess at this point we should get into the the experience of the Soviet Union because that's naturally going to be the the biggest contention of any advocate of, of planning so I guess What I want to ask is, does the Soviet Union, uh, does that show us that planning is feasible or impossible? So um, I guess the first thing I want to acknowledge about the Soviet Union is that, you know, it was actually successful in many ways in developing, you know, Russia, but also the other countries of the Eastern Bloc that were traditionally left behind by capitalism. Um, the USSR, in the first five-year plan, had, a, you know, modernized, developed leaps and bounds. In a very short amount of time, they caught up with the United States. The United States had, what, 150 years of capitalist development at that point? Or maybe slightly less. But, um, okay, let me wrap this up. <laughs> so, essentially, the Soviet Union brought a backwards nation into the modern age, Literized the entire population, built massive industry that competed with the U.S. Um, that's not me saying that you know that's not an endorsement of Stalinism or the command economy. It's an acknowledgement that even crude bureaucratic planning um, can be wildly successful. So, so yeah. Anyway, I guess. To mention, um, we actually have the example, the counter example of like what capitalist development would have looked like in Russia instead of, of, of planning. Well, it looks like 1990s Russia. Um, if you recall, in the 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the IMF and those kind of institutions implemented what they called shock therapy on, on Russia. And what shock therapy was, is like, we're just going to move you straight into capitalism with... You know, no, no real transition. It was a, it was an extreme liberalization of the liberalization and privatization of the Russian economy. So what that ended up causing was a massive um, collapse in living standards. Um, you know, statistics. I mean, I would encourage you to look it up. Statistics are pretty bleak. Um, you know, life expectancy dropped massively. You know, nutrition dropped massively, etc. I mean, it was so bad that. In the first presidential election, after shock therapy was introduced, the communist candidate actually came in second um, place, and in fact, he might have actually won. It's alleged that Yeltsin had rigged the election so he wouldn't win. So people are already like their brief experience of capitalism in Russia had completely they broken the illusion that they were going to get like better living living standards of capitalism. They wanted the Soviet Union back for the most part. So. Yeah, so planning in the in the, in the Soviet Union. Um, it had some problems. Um, so the idea was that, they, that the plan would be set at the highest levels. Um, okay, it would be set at the highest levels. Um, they'd had five-year plans. So the way that it worked was there was no deliberation in the Soviet Union about what the plan was going to be. It was essentially a bunch of bureaucrats in, a, in an office somewhere, and they said, in the next five years, we're going to do X, Y, Z, and they set targets. So the, the plan itself was sort of an injunction. It was a legal injunction. It was it was law. You have to follow the plan. Um, so essentially, a lot of the times they would make this plan, but it wasn't realistic. Um, these targets were not realistic. Um, so essentially because there was no profit motive um in the ussr there was no like hidden mechanism hidden hand that could coordinate all of different people and incentivize you know like more production so the soviet union essentially the soviet officials they relied on a lot of like exhortation um a lot of like pumping everybody up to produce and whatnot so there was no workers democracy so because of the fact that the plan in the Soviet Union had, like, the, a law-like character, that meant that there was an incentive, a perverse incentive, for everyone to lie about how much they're actually producing.
0: Yeah.
3: Okay, so that, that created a massive amount of waste. That massive amount of waste then led to bottlenecks that then created... Around the 1970s, it meant that the Soviet Union stopped growing, and then it never caught back up to the United States. Okay, so I guess to sum it up, the Soviet Union dealt, they, it, it, the real problem is that there was no way to manage all of that information. In that sense, Hayek was correct. Um, but there was also no, like, they also didn't have the computational power to actually. Crunch the numbers to do the plan. There was a Soviet scientist <clears throat> called Blushkov who attempted 30 or 40 years before the actual action to build a kind of internet-like system in the Soviet Union that would have had the capacity to do that. However, because it threatened the control of the planners and the bureaucrats, it never was seriously considered. Um, yeah, so I guess I want to end with saying that Because of the fact that it was undemocratic and unrealistic, it was an incredibly unstable system. Um, It ultimately leads through a long process back to capitalism as people become, um, you know, fed up. But mostly because the people who were in charge, the bureaucrats, um, they decided it would be better to be capitalists and make money and profit than it would be to actually just um, do the plan. So, so far, I've talked about how planning is not impossible we've talked about how it's actually, you know, conceptually possible and I've given examples of capitalist planning that can validate that. So I'm gonna have my comrade Clara here talk to you about different ways to approach the question of planning.
4: Uh, it's a tough act to follow but uh, so we know that uh, socialist uh, political we know that planning is socially and politically necessary. And we know that it's technically feasible but what'll it look like? What types of what types of infrastructure do we need and practices do we need to adopt in order to plan the economy? Well there's many things to learn from historical examples like the East Bloc and the Soviet Union uh, more broadly um, in their attempts to introduce socialist planning. I want to highlight some lesser known theories that attempt to address some of the problems that were actually faced by the the Soviet uh, economy. Uh, These models aren't templates that we can just copy and paste, but they do provide tools that we can use to think through socialist uh, planning in the socialist future. I want to warn everybody here in advance that a lot of this discussion is going to be very abstract, but I hope that it's going to pique your interest and that you'll look into these things for yourself. So the first model I'd like to offer um, is the Viable Systems Model, or VSM, developed by Stafford Beer and further elaborated by Raul Espejo and others. The viable system model was developed out of managerial cybernetics uh, and was originally applied to the organization of factories, including a steel mill in Manchester, England. However, Beer had greater ambitions and argued that his framework applied to economies as a whole, not just factories. The democratically elected socialist Allende government in Chile hired him to help develop a new participatory socialist economy. And one thing I do want to note um, is that the trucker strike that they broke was a petty bourgeois capitalist figures who owned army's production. They weren't like proletarians and they were backed by the CIA. Just want to throw that out there. Uh, It it wasn't like they were suppressing the working class. These were like reactionary, fascist figures. Uh, For our purposes though, I'm going to gloss over a lot of important aspects of the VSM. I don't want us to get bogged down in the details here. Um, and So I encourage you to look up Kyle Thompson's Tools for Viable Organizing. If you want an accessible account to use in your own organizing, the VSM actually, you can apply it to your actual organizations here and now. Uh, The VSM talks uh, about the process of planning in uh, terms of systems. There are systems one through five. We're going to discuss all of them on some level except for system five. The aspect most relevant um, to what we're talking about here in the VSM is called system four, or the outside and then. The VSM differs from Soviet style planning mainly because rather than instituting fixed prescriptive plans, it creates many dynamic projections of potential futures. These futures are weighted based on that probability and and, and are used to guide real time economic coordination using electronic communications infrastructure. As the models are disconfirmed, um, proven false, by unfolding events, they're routinely aborted and new projections are developed. This avoids, avoids serious pitfalls of Soviet planning, where the imperatives issued by central authorities became increasingly out of sync with the economic reality and dynamics of real production processes. For instance, in an automobile plan, if you try to set a fixed plan in advance to push out goods, you can run into delays, which accumulate. The car becomes delayed, the seller of the car can't sell, the order uh, made by the customer is pushed back, and this cascades. This will impact your ability to deliver on time and can waste resources as bottlenecks occur. Alternatively, you can use a pull system that draws parts forward, constantly adjusted according to changing conditions. If you do, you're far less susceptible to the waste of time and resources minor disruptions can cause. If a delay in one process occurs, you're able to identify where the problem is more quickly, and through active monitoring, identify the constraints and, and deal with them. One of the key assumptions the viable systems model makes, is, which differs from the Soviet economics, is that it starts from a very similar premise to people like Hayek and von Mises, actually, and other critics of socialist calculation, that the economy is irreducibly complex, but it turns it into an argument for the strength of socialist planning against capitalism. The VSM argues, off the bat, that the world is uncertain, chaotic, and exceedingly complicated. The problem is not only affects economic planners, but even the leaders of every enterprise or in social organization, every single business, faces the same problem of an economic planner. Instead of relying on a prescriptive and inherently unstable five-year plan, the VSM allows planners to rapidly adjust to prevent incipient crises in a coordinated manner. So, crises that... Are likely to occur for instance with a car factory the workers realize oh we will not be able to deliver the right amount of cars in this amount of time let's input into the computer the amount of cars we can deliver in such and such amount of time this information gets propagated to all the relevantly affected parties who can make their own adjustments the viable system model is also concerned with the internal structure of the economy what it calls the inside and now which it calls the systems two and three the aspects that concern us here are the planning apparatus in the VSM, which is highly decentralized. Decisions are made as close to the workers engaged in the production process as possible. They're not made by distant bureaucrats. This takes place in a recursive manner. And recursion means that you have a repetition of the structure across all levels. Think about those crazy fractals that when you zoom in, the pattern repeats over and over. Have you ever seen that kind of zoom in patterns? Um, I want to emphasize this term recursion. Each process in the VSM recurs at, function, um, at functionally at every level um, in the um, economy. Uh, each unit of production at the level below the level we're looking at is called system one. So, uh, if you have, you know, a, a, a auto uh, plant, the production units inside of that are at system one. So, each factory, distribution outlet, farm, municipality, and continental block each produce their own anticipated outcomes and are used to plan political priorities. So this planning isn't happening just centrally, it's happening at every single level of the economy in a participatory manner involving those involved. And so think once again, think about the car factory here. Uh, the workers themselves are actually planning their production guided by the higher level plans. While decision-making power is distributed in the VSM, the model contains very egalitarian aspects, but it's not an anarchist framework. The central political authorities play a vital role. The day-to-day organizers are part of what's called system three organizers at each level of production work to harmonize the activities of lower levels they deal with exceptions where agreed rules of operation can't cover conflicts between competing priorities for example a regional organizer within a steel industry might have to help balance competing claims between factories about which they'll receive the first of an upgraded model of machine or introduce a new safety program if there's rates of industrial accidents are starting to grow Unlike market systems, which rely on a single unit to measure all economic activities, that is, prices, the viable system model uses multiple variables which differ across each level of recursion. Uh, The VSM relies on real-time metrics observing key performance indices of different economic activities which are set based on a specific context. So you're not measuring the same measurements in every factory. It's, It's determined based on what you're producing who's involved, and the concerns of the uh, democratic uh, imperatives that are that are at play. Um, this allows ecological, social, and other factors to play just as vital of a role in determining what is considered efficiency as output. System 3, or the organizers, also play a vital auditing role. Rather than micromanage production and issue eti- issue detailed orders, they're concerned with ensuring the system 1s, the... Um, base units, are responsible um, and are held um, accountable for their agreed um, plans. They maintain a resource bargain between the higher and lower levels of the economy. That means in exchange for enacting the democratic vision established at a higher level, productive units are afforded the resources necessary to operate. If a group were to go rogue, for instance, a steel factory refusing to install necessary anti-pollution measures that had been democratically established, the higher level would withhold necessary resources. The auditing role isn't just negative or punitive, though. Each level of the VSM constantly sends signals upwards, uh, indicating their status when problems emerge. They can, rap- they can rapidly issue what are called pain signals, or uh, algodonic feedback, to call for support. This allows um, much more clear channels of communication and transparent economic insights, which are missing in the Soviet Union and other similar states. If you're keep track, if you're keeping track, we've glossed over uh, System 2 quite a bit. Which includes uh, the formal rules that are used to harmonize activity. This includes the safety rules, standard operating procedures, and so on. And I'm completely leaving out System Five, perhaps the most important system of all, because it's really beyond the scope of this discussion. Um, and I'd like to move on to uh, Otto Neurath's uh, marketless socialism as kind of another uh, framework. Uh, so the second theorist I want to introduce is Otto Neurath. Neurath was a Marxist revolutionary, sociologist, philosopher, minister, economist, and statistician. He played a vital role in many fields, from the development of philosophy of science, data visualization, and economic theory. He participated in the short-lived Bavarian Soviet Republic in planning the department in their planning department and advised Soviet planners and statisticians, including uh, Vladimir um, Bazarov, during the uh, New Economic Policy. Uh, Neurath is best known for his role in economic calculation debates. Yeah, my comrades here have uh, already kind of explored a bit for us. Um, He's actually the person that Hayek and von Mises were criticizing, and he had responded to them and actually refuted them, but that's really ignored. Um, Neuerath is best known. uh, He argued that a moneyless economy uh, is possible and could calculate economic demands in kind, which means you do so directly for each sort of good or service. For instance, rather than determining how many hamburgers you need to produce in a city using price signals to establish an equilibrium between supply and demand, you would forecast the demand directly based on consumption patterns. It's worth noting that big retailers like Walmart themselves already use in kind calculation by placing orders derived from the number of units on hand uh, to ensure inventory availability rather than actually using sales to do so. Uh, Rather than creating universal pricing metrics that all goods or services are measured with, NIRAF proposes using multiple factors which can be set democratically. These factors would represent constraints that planning would have to contend with. For instance, If almonds grown in a region use too much water to be sustainable, they might not simply be grown there. Contrast this with a pricing system, uh, or some versions of uh, socialist planning that um, use prices, uh, where if there's sufficient demand, it might compel uh, the system to grow almonds in in an unsustainable way. Neurath is far ahead of his time in exploring ecological economics. He sees the exhaustibility of resources, factors like pollution, and the social effects of production as vital factors that have to be integral to a planned economy in a deep way. For an in-kind economy, once you establish the constraints, you're able to optimize and develop a plan which effectively meets democratic priorities. This is where, in today's society, we would use computer models and the sorts of calculations that um, our comrades have articulated. What in-kind calculation does on a fundamental level is to ensure that economic decisions can be made socially and politically. Because market systems and pricing create a depersonalized framework for coordinated activities, they breed social alienation as work becomes subordinated to abstract priorities like profit. In-kind calculation demands that we ask ourselves which factors do we really want value more in deciding between trade-offs of producing particular goods and services. Deciding to build a hospital cannot really be determined in a price system because the value of a healthy community is intangible they can't be directly compared with the resource costs. You can measure the quantitative public health outcomes, but it's complete nonsense to try to price health on the same metric you're pricing the environmental impact of building a hospital or the cost of training medical staff. Neurath calls this pseudo-rationalism because it attempts to create a rational and logical accounting, but does so with extreme violence to empirical reality by substituting abstractions for that reality. These decisions have to make... Have to be made politically by society using reliable statistical information, um, but they have to be made politically. Neurath's theory of economic planning goes beyond simply using multiple factors as opposed to prices, though. He introduces a theory of utopian design. Uh, for Neurath, there's two kinds of utopias those that are unwarranted abstractions detached from reality, and those that are conceivable futures that better embody our collective values and which are a horizon we can strive for. Oddly enough, bourgeois management theorists like Russell Akov. They later developed similar ideas that are now widely used in corporate planning, like idealized design and interactive planning, also things you should look up and use in your own organism. Like Beer, Neurath proposes using multiple models of the future to guide economic practice. However, Beer's projections are more instrumental and more like a dynamic map. Neurath's version of, of projected futures is an inspiring vision. Neurath argues that economic planning requires utopian visions of possible futures which can motivate people to bridge the gap between current reality and their vision these utopias need to be realistic as possible given the best understanding of existing reality available because their purpose is to allow scientific planning to work towards something for Neurath, the utopias of planning describe a world in which men with their faults and foibles can live as happily as is allowed by the natural base land and sea raw materials and climate number of people in spirit of invention, culture, and will to work. Compare this with the so-called American dream, which motivates people today. Where the American dream is unattainable to most, the socialist visions of a good life can offer something to strive for that is attainable for all. A few utopian visions in Neueras sense, which disagree with one another, uh, are Half-Worth Socialism by Troy uh, Batesse and Drew Pendergrass, People's Republic of Walmart by uh, Phillips and uh, Roswell, <clears throat> Roswurst, and Less Is More, A Degrowth of Future by Jason Hickel. The te- these texts lay out compelling visions of how the future can be, wholly within the conditions afforded by the world today. They propose very different visions, and it is for the socialist movement to politically determine which of these will adopt. Socialist planning is goal-directed. It doesn't take economic imperatives as given and simply problems of optimization. What this means in concrete terms is that socialist economies consciously shape the world through production rather than naturalizing our social relations and treating them as if they occur spontaneously consumer demand isn't a product of nature but is shaped by historical and social forces and can be consciously altered capitalists do this all the time through marketing socialists propose that demand can be changed by the consumers and producers themselves we need socialist planning to have an economy that serves the democratic interests of society uh <clears throat> and to properly account for ecological dynamics um, and that's yeah.
0: thanks for listening if you like this episode subscribe to our podcast and to the haymarket books youtube channel where events like this one are hosted live and don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org